Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Brenda Peinado, author of the new short story collection, The Rock Eaters. Brenda's stories have won an O'Henry Award, a Pushcart Prize, the Chicago Tribune's Nelson Algren Literary Award, selection for the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and the Best Small Fictions, a Dana Award, a Fulbright Grant to the Dominican Republic, and other awards. Brenda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Shev, for having me. Absolutely. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new short story collection, The Rock Eaters, is there a theme that you are addressing in some or all of the stories in the collection? Yeah, the stories are are pretty varied and wild. So I've got, uh, you know, angels perched on rooftops and alien arrivals and uh, basement ghosts teaching love and Latin American superheroes. But there's also, you know, a thread going through all of them. Um, you know, there's even Latina girlhood and sometimes it's just realism. But all of them are characters who are trying to love across across boundaries or walls that sometimes they've erected even within themselves. Um, so sometimes that can be something as, you know, bizarre as they come from different planets um, and have different expectations for the world. And sometimes it's um, something people come from different countries. Um, sometimes it's a literal wall, like uh, in the last story, the Latin American superheroes approaching uh, a giant wall on the U.S. border. Um, but sometimes it's just those those things within ourselves that that keep us from reaching out and connecting with other people. And that hunger that we have as humans to to try to connect, even while we're erecting these walls around ourselves, that impulse to try to reach out to somebody else and and love. Well, of the 16 stories in your collection, do you have one or two that are your favorites? I I have a place in my heart for all of them, for sure. (laughs) Um, Probably the one uh, that I find myself thinking about the most just because of the pandemic is there's a story in there called The Touches that's about um, a world where people have retreated into quarantine boxes and live their lives in virtual reality. And uh, this, the main character is trying to, um, she's trying to figure out what's going on with her glitching robots and her, her research to try to reenter the human race back into the real world. Um, but in the process, she's also uh, elected to have um, a virtual baby and her husband is disappearing um, in strange ways. And at the end, it's really about that desire for connection and that that desperate hunger for human touch. And the reason why I keep thinking about that in the pandemic, I wrote it maybe a year or two before the pandemic started. Um, but since then, you know, the pen, the pandemic has started and I didn't spend that first summer of the pandemic. Uh, I got an Oculus Quest. And so I spent the first summer in virtual reality, um, hanging out with people in various weird <laughs> virtual reality rooms. Um, and I, I even moved to a new city just uh, a month ago and I explored my new city by by doing virtual reality across Google Maps and sort of walking through it with other people that were also in VR. So I've been thinking a lot about that one just in terms of um, that desire for human connection and, and how it has ended up being 
strangely prescient. I also got pregnant um, and recently gave birth. So that that too was in the book. So I've, I found myself thinking a lot about that legacy of, of human hunger for connection and touch. Gotcha. Well, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first short stories published? I've definitely had a, a, a longer ride and more circuitous route than, than I think most people, but I, <laughs> um, I started off as a computer science major uh, and I ended up doing computational neuroscience for my thesis in undergrad and I ended up working in computer security for a while. And what ended up happening that I, I wrote throughout and I took workshops throughout. For me, computer science felt a lot like writing. Um, it was computer science and philosophy were my two. Um, and thinking about um, neuroscience in that computer sort of model way had me thinking about human psychology in ways that ended up really getting reflected when I wrote in terms of trying to delve deep into what makes a character tick and what makes our hearts break and what makes us hunger for things. And thinking about that from a computer science perspective and also programming to me was a creative act and, and an act of world building in a lot of ways that a lot of that, I think, really influenced the way that I um, build new worlds and um, delve into characters. And it actually wasn't until a few years into me working in computer security where I, real I had a, a breakdown moment where I realized, you know, if every server in the world went down, everybody else would care, but I actually don't think I would care very much. <laughs> and so I, I had a moment where I was like, okay, I need to rethink this. And then I was like, okay, if I keep writing, I'm sort of always writing in my journal as we were um, traveling in hotels to, to different data centers. Um, I thought, you know, nobody else cares if I continue writing, but it turns out I really care. And so that, that flip about finding out what I cared about was what led me to go get my MFA in writing and, and uh, write, write this book. Well, I'm curious, is the writing process for a new short story always the same for you? When you sit down to write a story, are you sitting down to a blank page or do you have a character or scene or even a plot in mind already? That's a great question. It really depends on the story. For a lot of these stories, um, I typically start off with an image or a, a sort of what-if scenario. And then from there, I move on to, okay, from that image, then I come up with character. And usually that's an, an emotional feeling, like whose heart would break because of this image. And then from there, the sort of plot is, is the breaking of that character. So uh, a story like The Kite Maker, which has the first scene of aliens in a park flying kites and singing. And that image came to me and I was thinking, okay, I really like this image, but uh, what's in, there's not a story there yet. So what's emotional about these aliens flying the kite? And then I thought, okay, the kites remind them of their lost homeworld and they're sort of singing for that loss. I'm like, okay, that's, that's an emotional feeling. But I realized I didn't really want to write a story from the alien perspective. I wanted to write it from the human perspective. So then I thought, well, what would be heartbreaking about watching these aliens sing for their lost planet? And then from there, I got this, this character who feels very responsible for 
uh, some of the tragedy that's happened to them. And from there, and she's trying to relieve her burden of guilt, um, sometimes to disastrous consequences. So from there, the story sort of took off with the plot. But then there are other ones where um, I started off with more of a, uh, sometimes a, a layer of a story where I knew I wanted to write a story about, um, I spent the summer in upstate New York with, with a boyfriend and I was really impressed with the way that his family, it was such a small town and his family knew the histories of sort of everyone on the block and everyone we met at the grocery store. They knew, you know, how so-and-so's grandfather did X for a living and died this way and their grandmothers were this. Um, and it's something I hadn't really encountered in American culture. Um, I'm Dominican American. And when I grew up in Tampa, so many of the the stories that felt really rich like that to me were stories from the island, from the Dominican Republic. And a lot of the, the people that were my friends in, in Tampa, their families had moved there from elsewhere and had sort of lost touch with those familiar histories. So I was so impressed by this in an American context when I went um, to visit that I wanted to write a story about it, but I kept adding these extra plots that wouldn't work. Um, they just sort of took me away from what I really wanted to write about, which was this family history. And so I wrote maybe eight drafts of that story um, that didn't work until finally I hit upon the image of the sorrow stones that grew on their body that were the literal manifestations of these family, these legacies of sorrow that everybody knew about everyone else. And then suddenly the story was about what I wanted it to be about. And that's uh, another route that my stories often take is the adding in of layers as I figure out how to get to the real heart of the story. Interesting. Well, I know you received your MFA at Florida State University. What was your MFA experience like? I I was really lucky in my MFA in that it it's a really big program and I got to work with so many people. Um, I think I maybe had seven or eight different instructors there and I learned something from each one. So each one sort of had their individual thing that they really, um, they really focused on. So I had uh, one professor who really focused on plot and another one who said, you know, forget about plot. The only thing you have to worry about is character. <laughs> And then I had another one who was like, forget about character and plot. All that just comes. What you need to focus on is the muse, the inspiration. You just need to like dig in your subconscious. So I had a lot of that where each person was like, you know, and, and then I had somebody who was like, forget about that. You only have to worry about theme and the rest will come. So, <laughs> so in some ways I was really lucky. Um, and then when I finished my MFA, I had uh, a long process of trying to put all of those piecemeal things together and sort of coming up with my own grand unified theory of, of what makes a story that included theme and character and plot together. Um, and, and that was probably my longest part of my journey in terms of being a writer. And then, of course, as somebody who writes uh, across genre and I love writing I love science fiction and fantasy and magical realism of the Latino boom as much as I love realism. Um, that was maybe a little bit more difficult in workshop just because uh, sometimes the people in workshop weren't my ideal readers. They, they never right. read something like that before. Um, so workshop wasn't always successful in that way, but I always learned that even if people's taste did not align with mine, um, I could say, okay, they're not my ideal reader. But usually when they pointed out something wasn't working, um, 
they were right about what wasn't working. They just weren't always right about the fix. Um, sometimes their fix was take all the magic out. And that was not the right answer. But they were right that something wasn't working with the magic. So I, I had to sort of um, learn to read between the lines of what someone's comments were in workshop. Gotcha. Well, I know that you currently teach in the MFA program at the University of Central Florida. How do you approach the teaching of fiction writing? Yeah, I love being a teacher. Um, and I have to say, I'm actually, um, I am just starting this fall um, in, at the University of Houston Okay. At, um, in their MFA and their PhD program. And one of the things that I really love thinking about and teaching is world building and and thinking about the craft and techniques of people who write unreal fiction and then applying that also to realism um, and thinking about sort of a grand unified theory of fiction um, like I was mentioning before instead of thinking about well this genre does this like thrillers do this and science fiction does this and fantasy does this differently and that's all different from realism instead of approaching it that way i want to think about just you know story is story and what makes story good and a lot of times it might seem like a magical fantasy story works differently than a realism story but but really you know a witch arriving a crazy witch arriving from you know another uh, dimension functions a lot like the crazy uncle that you know arrives and throws and upheaves a family and one might be science fiction if it's an alien or fantasy if it's a witch but um it works exactly the same as realism so i've come to approach fiction really holistically in that way and also thinking about what makes a story break someone's heart um and what makes it emotional? And I've sort of come to this idea of um, the heart of a story as what is in this character that will bring them, that is breaking them. What is in them that is sort of rubbing up against the reality of their lives and, and what they want to be. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. And that includes, you know, character, it includes theme, um, it has tension in it. And then the plot is then what brings them to the point of breaking. Um, so I talked about that a lot in my workshops. And I also, sometimes when my students hear this, they sort of gasp, but I ask them all to write from scratch revision. So not a single word from their first draft that they workshop can appear in their revision. <laughs> And so there's a collective gasp across the room, but by the end, they're like, you know, that from scratch revision turned out so much better than it would have been had I, had I tried to tweak. Um, and I find that a lot of times people end up getting sucked back into the sentences of their first draft that weren't working and they just have a hard time pulling themselves away. They're, they're trying really hard to revise, but it's just hard when that mess in front of you keeps sort of ensnaring it back, ensnaring you back into its trap. Um, so that's another sort of philosophy I have about revision, which is throwing away, start from scratch. And if there was good stuff in there, I, I will appear in the second draft. Well, what other writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? I would say patience, um, patience and keep writing because for me i've had a, a long journey for these short stories um from my mfa it's been um maybe about uh it's been a bit less than a decade since uh i finished my mfa and i sold these stories actually a few years ago um and the book has taken 2 years to come out but also mm -hmm. the stories were published you know many years before that before they were collated into this collection. So for me, I just think I never could have imagined in my MFA that, that things would take this pace. Um, there's, <laughs> there's always the, the, the hope that, you know, as soon as you graduate, you have a collection of short stories, you have a book and you're off. Um, but I would also say that one of the reasons why it's taking me so long is because I always, uh, aim high. I sort of, I don't ever undercut myself with, you know, what magazine I think might take a story. I always start off with the top and I might accumulate 40 or 50 rejections before a story gets picked up. But that, um, that's sort of all part of the process. And at this point, I get excited when I get a rejection because then I think, oh, great, I can send it to this, this other place next or <laughs> great, I get to revise it now. Um, so I would say have a lot of joy in, this is hard, but have a lot of joy in the process of rejection and the process of, um, waiting. I always think we're, we're in such a hurry because we think, you know, everyone's waiting, but really, I mean, no one's waiting for us to publish whatever it is that we're going to publish. And when we publish it, everyone's going to be like, wow, that's amazing. And it'll be the first time they've seen it. Nobody's like, you know, this, this took you five years. Where were you? <laughs> Right. So yeah, patience and, and joy and rejection and always keep writing the next thing because it could be that that thing 
that story that you wrote or that novel will get 50 rejections and then get published. Or it could get 50 rejections and not get published. And that's just all in the course of being a writer. The way to get out of that or the way to sort of keep going as a writer is you just have the next thing. So it doesn't matter that that novel didn't sell because you've got two more that you've kept working on while you've been sending it out. On that note, are you working on new stories or a novel yourself? Yeah, I'm working on so much. Um, <laughs> I I always have something that I'm I'm cheating on my main project with. Um, so I am I'm working on a novel about the 1965 uh, Civil War in the Dominican Republic and the American invasion um, that that came to quell the Civil War. And a girl that can see all possible futures and sees that her mother is going to die as a combatant in this war, and so she's trying to save her mother by sort of masterminding people across the city. Um, so I'm working on that novel, and I'm almost done with that. Um, I also have a novella that I'm working on that includes um, time dilation pocket universes and a, uh, an agent of the time agency that was supposed to um, sort of cordon off these pocket universes. Um, and I'm always working on short stories. So I've, I, I also, I will say, I also love working on screenplays. So I'm, I'm trying to adapt some of the short stories from the Rock Eaters. That's great. What, what drew you to screenplays? Well, as a computer scientist, I like organization and I just love that screenplays, like you read all the screenplay books and I won't say they're formulaic, but they do have structure. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I really love that about the screen and there's been such great television coming out lately. Um, True. I just watched raised by wolves and it's amazing what you can do when you have 10 hours, uh, to sort of get the reader, um, or the, the, the viewer to get to know these characters and, and watch them. And I think especially in science fiction, the world building that you can do visually is just incredible. So I really love to, to see science fiction on the screen, even if I've read the book. That's great. Well, what short story collections, novels, or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I will admit, since I, I gave birth three months ago, I haven't been oh, able no. to keep, <laughs> I actually haven't been able to read um, in those three months, or I haven't kept up with things that come out this year. But I have um, one of my favorite uh, novels that came out, um, I think, last year was uh, Sharks in the Time of Saviors by Kawhi Strong-Washburn. Um, who the novel is about Hawaii and saving Hawaii and there's magical realism in there for someone who gets superpowers. Um, and I won't spoil the ending, but it's, it's such a beautifully written story. Um, and there's another novel by Indra Das called The Devourers, which it's a, it's a story about werewolves-ish um, set in India. And it's very much about having a second self and negotiating that second self. And it's also so gorgeously, lushly written. It's, it's a really beautiful book. And there's been some collections that came out this year that, um, that I was able to read uh, before I gave birth, which was uh, Teping Chen's Land of Big Numbers and mm -hmm. uh, Don Teal Moniz's uh, Milk Blood Heat or Milk, milk Heat Blood. Okay. There's those three in there. <laughs> um, yes. And I've really loved those collections. 
That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your stories and, and upcoming books? Ah, thank you for asking. Uh, you can find me at brendapainato.com um, and Twitter at brendapainato. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Brenda Peinato, author of the new short story collection, The Rock Eaters. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Brenda, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks so much, Jeff. I appreciated talking with you and the audience. Great. Thanks a lot. That was great. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audio book of the short story collection, The Rock Eaters. Audio excerpted courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. From the Rock Eaters by Pr Brenda Peinado, read by Frankie Corzo, Ines Del Castillo, Sunil Mohatra, Alejandro Reynos, and Jane Santos. Available from Penguin Random House Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. The morning before the school shooting passed like any other, all my neighbors out at dawn performing ablations to the angels on our roofs. Families clustered around the sidewalks, mist from our lawns swirling around our ankles, looking up at the angels' pale humanoid faces and downy bird bodies perched beside our chimneys. Our mothers beat their breasts, performing sorrow for the tragedies that always went on elsewhere in the world. Our parents yelled their usual thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, toward the angels atop our roofs. As children, we were supposed to kneel in the moist grass and be quiet in case the angels were ever to speak. The angels, for the most part, barely noticed. They chewed their cud from the grasses and bugs they scavenged during the night, and then shat runny white on our roofs, the shingles looking iced with snow despite the Florida heat. When I was in kindergarten, we'd thrown rocks at them to get their attention, but they'd just turned and resumed their silent watch over the neighborhood. My parents began the ritual, already dressed in their work clothes, looking as polished as a photograph in front of our freshly painted stucco house. I was obedient in my stiff school clothes. My mother never allowed me to stumble outside in my pajamas like some of the other kids. There was no greater argument in our house than when my mother thought I had done something unworthy of our angel. Out of all the angels, ours was considered the most blessed of the neighborhood. When my parents came to this country after college, this house was the first one they looked at and their immigration papers arrived miraculously within the week. While others searched for homes and jobs for months, my parents sailed into their new life, prayed gratefully to their new rooftop patron. When the economic downturn came and brought with it a plague of layoffs, my mother was able to keep her tech job, and my father flourished in a financial field that boomed in downturns. Betting on failure, he called it. The hurricane tore apart most roofs in our Florida suburb, but not mine. Every day my mother returned to the house, pulling into our drive. She breathed a great sigh as she saw our angel perched beside our chimney, albino-faced, sleek-winged, dumb eyes that looked at nothing. At our basketball games, the parents cheered for us, but it was known that the real game was played silently among the angels. Across the street, my best friend Rima Patil's family kneeled in front of their ramshackle house, the embarrassment of the neighborhood, mold blooming on the stucco, brown waves along the roof line where the gutters and wooden fascia had fallen into disrepair, a bright blue tarp over the roof above Rima's room, 
where a hurricane had downed a tree, just barely missing their angel. The blue tarp rolled and snapped like a flag of shame. Rima's family was known to have the worst angel on the block. Her dad was one of the first to get laid off, lose health insurance. Her older brother had developed schizophrenia and claimed that the angels gave him secret messages. The family didn't have the money for his medications. The bank had visited their house three times in the past month. When the hurricane hit, the oak tree in front of their yard not only punched a hole in the roof, but also fell onto the family car. The tarp they placed over it leaked mist and bugs and occasional angel guano. That they were the one Hindu family in a neighborhood of Latino Catholics was not lost on my mother, though the fact that they were even darker than the rest of us, my mother pretended not to notice. Rima was wild, a force of nature, and my mother was known to count this as one of Rima's mother's misfortunes. Nothing terrible had happened to Rima's sister, Shruti, yet. She was valedictorian, a national prize cellist, who radiated beauty. But we were all waiting. There was a sense that she would not be spared. It was Shruti Rima got her strength from, though while Rima's came out in recklessness and force, all elbows and knees, her sister had merged it with a softness that came out in glory when she played music. I idolized Shruti for her ability to walk the line between strength and obedience, her ability to get away with doing what she wanted while still looking like a saint, unlike Rima, who fooled no one, and me feeling caged and wanting desperately to do something unforgivable. Rima winked at me and then resumed solemnity, leaning on her fists in their overgrown grass. Her long black braid flicked with the impatience of a cat's tail as she turned back, echoing how it often weaponized into a whip on the basketball court. Her sister, Shruti, inclined her head as if she were still at her cello, her own long black hair draping over one shoulder. I knew Shruti had woven Rima's braid, had raked her deft fingers through the silken mess, had crooned a carnatic composition as she worked. For the moment, Rima's lanky brother, Rajiv, was quiet, his eyes sallow from sleeplessness, instead of having his usual energy. Their mother beat her chest with one hand and kept her other hand dug into Rajiv's elbow in case he started with one of his outbursts. Their father, still in his pajamas, gritted his teeth and barked thoughts and prayers like it was being dragged out of him. Back in Bengaluru, they'd had other words, other rituals for the angels on their roofs. The angels above us looked on into the distance, snapping their mouths to eat mosquitoes from the air. How could I have known that this would be the last time I would see all of them together, that unlucky family? If I had known, what would I have done to protect them? A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time, from an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.